Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Cinefix Top 100, our Dutch-angled trip through post-war Vienna to watch 100 of the greatest movies of all time. Joining me today, Cinefix's foremost defender of pulpy Western adventure novels, Alex Stedman. Alex, how are you doing? I'm good, and now I really wish we did actually do this in a Dutch angle. That would have been cute. Oh, I know. We should have. We spent we this whole time setting up, and none of us thought I know. about it. Wait, this, French uh, isn't, this movie isn't French or Dutch? I thought it was Dutch. Dude, Cal, I haven't introduced you yet. You're not allowed to talk yet. I mean, <laughs> let me just get, get straight to this, Al. and then we'll get back to the bit. Uh, and our very own Sergeant Payne, Michael Calibro. Hey. Nice. Both of you now. How are we doing? Good, man. How good, you doing? Good, good. We're back. Uh, you know, under the at the mercy of the whims of Dan's algorithm once again for a, for a proper top 100 movie, but it's classic, The Third Man. Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. They have their five-year plans. So have I. When was the last time you guys saw The Third Man? Uh, what What are your general thoughts about The Third Man? Just to I, jump straight the in. The most recent time I saw it was yesterday. It was... Uh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> prior to that. Uh, it's been a couple of years. but It's been a minute? Yeah, it's definitely been a minute. I want to say like a couple of years... I want to say about like maybe two or three years ago, I went through a hard noir phase again. And like I rewatched it and it was... It's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just release my cinephile shame at the top and also completely spoil the end as to where this does or does not fall on my list. Uh, I watched it for the first time a few days ago. And again, I own that cinephile shame because I had such a good time watching it and trying and failing to figure out where it was going to go because truly at no point did I ever have a good idea of what was going to happen next. I, I I had a good old time. I mean, honestly, I'm moderately jealous uh, of you being able to watch this movie for the first time. Right? I, I, like, I felt the same way because I was like, I want yeah. to watch this for the first time again, even though I just finished watching it. It's it's a movie, too, that like, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of movies and there's no shame in having not seen one. Yeah. Um, so like, that's fine. Secondly, like I it's a movie that I knew enough about by the time I actually saw it that it wasn't there wasn't really like a whole surprise kind of yeah. element to it, which I'm you know, it's kind of a bummer. But I definitely yeah. knew um, about it. And it was one that it was like, Oh, I have to watch this at some point. So this this show forced yeah. me to do that. And I'm glad it did. But I, I still went into it fairly blind as far as like the big twists and turns. And I'm so glad yeah. I did the general the tale of tape here for, for the third man 1949. Uh, the just right smack in the height of the film noir uh, era. Um, directed by Carol Reed, starring Joseph Cough, uh, Cotton, Orson Welles, uh, set in the post-war Vienna. Although, I don't know about you guys, I really am more of a Constantinople chap from before the war. Um, I could, couldn't agree more with, with that opening VO. Um, but the, uh, the pedigree of this movie, 
Um, he was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Director for Carol Reed, Best uh, Editing were the two nominations it didn't win. But then it did win for Best Cinematography, which I think is is, is just the most deserving award of all time. Uh, and if, I bet we're going to talk yeah, more about it. I mean, it. it was the cover of my cinematography textbook in college. Like, There you go. It was also yeah. the, it like, was, like, it was just hey, the winner of, yeah. Yeah, it Harry, was uh, cinematography black and white. Because uh, fun fact, it used to be separated by black and white and color cinematography. Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we'll, we'll get more into to the look of this movie because it's one of the most striking things about the film, I think. One of the things that holds up the best. But uh, but it won a bunch of other. It also won the Palme d'Or out of out of Cannes that year. Uh, best British film at the BAFTAs. Uh, even though it also showed up on the American Film Institute on AFI's top 100, which is just about American films. So both countries claim it somehow. Well, it has to do with like who produced it and who put up I what mean, percentage Zel of money. I mean, Zelnick's an like, American producer, right? So it has to... Yeah, yeah. There was, there's one American producer and two British producers. So they both sort of share custody. I, I don't know. Every every other weekend they get to stay with dad or something like that. Um, but then, uh, yeah, yeah. It was so it was number fifty-seven on AFI's original top one hundred list. Uh, but then when they revamped, re revisited the list ten years later, it got bumped completely. Which I frankly don't understand how you go from fifty-seven to not there at all. Maybe it's Dan's algorithm. Dan can explain how that kind of thing happens, I guess. But he interned at the um, AFI around then, I think. <laughs> this is once again Dan's fault. It also has its own Criterion Collection spine number, number sixty-four which is a lofty number indeed. It's pretty solid. That's, that's early. Yeah. 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 Where spine numbers are concerned. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty high. The other great thing about this movie, the other, the other fun little pedigree about this, this film, the, uh, of course the zither, the score that, uh, that just happy go lucky score. The, the theme song spent 11 weeks as billboards. Number one in 1950. I did not know that. That's incredible. For just an instrumental zither tune to be the number one, like 1950 was a different planet. Did you know that like Carol Reed discovered this guy because he was just there playing at like the welcome to Vienna party for like the cast and crew. And then like he hunted him down to be like, I must know more about your instrument. And then like hired him to score like the entire movie. And then like he flew him out to London and he lived in Carol Reed's house and Carol Reed would bring home reels of film at night for them to watch together so he could like live score. Like they are like, they are like thick as thieves, which is why the zither is like the thing that's the opening credits. Yeah, I mean, the zither is the whole, the whole goddamn movie. Also, it's just a beautiful auditory, like, uh, I feel like it just exudes, like, Harry Lime's, like, you know, just, like, childish nihilism, you know? Like, oh, that's a good like, way to put it. It's, like, fun and playful, and, like, like Harry Lime just clearly doesn't give a f**k, and he's just trying to have a good time, despite the fact that, like, he's, like, living yeah, because I was trying to decipher it the whole movie because it is so much more playful than the actual plot is. I like that interpretation that it's actually just Harry Lime just lying and stealing his way through life. Laughing. Having a Laughing. Good time. Just yeah. opining. Well, I mean, and, and what do you want like me the... to do, old chap? I'm dead. 
<laughs> I love it. Oh, come on, old man. Don't worry, old man. They won't hurt her. You're handing her over to the Russians. What can I do, old man? I'm dead, aren't I? You can help somehow. Holly. Every time I see this movie, it makes me want to just start working that into my vocabulary. Like, I'm just going to start calling everybody chap and old man. And I was going to ask, actually, not to go on a tangent, was old man, was that supposed to be an endearing term in that moment? Or was he trying to cut him down? I mean, it's honestly how I refer to my father. Yeah, that's that. I think that's that's our sort of version of old man stateside. Because I'll do the same thing. I talk about my old man, but then old. I think it's I think it's interchangeable with buddy. I mean, this is like one year before Sputnik, so like that hasn't been in the vernacular yet. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know if you guys had like gym teachers that referred to kid as Sputnik, kids as Sputnik. But... I did not. No, I did not. <laughs> But just to, to sort of wrap up some of the pedigree type stuff before before we get into it, because I like I want to talk about the nuts and bolts of this film because it's it's an incredibly well put together movie. Um, Joseph Cotton, the lead. Um, I mean, he Joseph Cotton is one of those, he was he was for sure a name back in the forties. Um, but like the the one that I always remember him from, like he did Citizen Kane, he did uh, Magnificent Ambersons with Orson Welles too, and like he was he was kind of in that in that crowd. But with Shadow of a Doubt. The Hitchcock movie that he did is always the one that freaks me out, which is where he plays the little girl's uh, like uncle. favorite uncle who turns yeah. out to be yeah. Yeah, a murderer. Yeah. Um, uh, fun fact about that. Uh, Joseph Cotton knows just how well he is. I, I, I found this quote of from jo Joseph Cotton. And this is I quote here. Orson Welles lists Citizen Kane as his best film. Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock opts for a shadow of a doubt. And Sir Carol Reed chooses the third man. I'm in all three of them. Like, <laughs> I that? love that. Yeah, that's a Joseph Cotton quote. He he just turned into my favorite guy. That's yeah. that's pretty great. I do like him a lot in this movie, though. He has kind of just like this like angular face that works well for all those different roles, especially Shadow of a Doubt, which you brought up. Yeah. He's um, he's 40s handsome for sure. Super oh, yeah. super 40s yeah. handsome. And then also 40s handsome Orson Welles. Um, and the 40s were like. Because he did Citizen Kane was at the beginning of the decade, like forty-one, something like that. Um, and then by the time he got to the late for nineteen forty-nine, when this movie was made, I feel like he was pretty close to being like that notoriously hard to deal with Orson Welles. Like he was never a peach on set, but I, I read some quotes about how the, he was just a real jerk to everybody during the making of this movie. Partially because he didn't want to run around in sewers and all this stuff, which I, I kind of get, but. 50 years later, it sounds like the AD is like really skewering him. It's like yeah, all the, yeah. the all, all the interviews I read are just like the like the assistant director on this just be like that worse well. <laughs> and then uh, Alita Valley uh, as Anna Schmidt, the other the third kind of lead in, in the, the film. I, I thought she was incredible. Like, I think she yeah, might. Yeah. I don't want to spoil my MVP pick, but she might be like my favorite character in the whole movie. She and she it's plays great. her so well. So love struck. I love her in this. She's tough as rocks too. Like she's tough as rocks. Yeah. And I didn't realize she was in. She was also in um, Eyes Without a Face, and which I don't know if you've ever seen Eyes Without a Face. It's incredible. It's the one. It's a French film about a doctor who uh, his daughter gets in an accident and he needs to reconstruct her face, and he does it by killing other young women and like surgically putting. It's it's bananas. Um, but she's in that one. She's also in Suspiria. She played. She played the in the original Suspiria. She played like the head instructor. That's um, her. Yeah, I didn't even put yeah. that together. Miss, for some Miss reason. Tanner. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I guess I'm due for a Suspiria um, rewatch. 
so Valley, as she's credited on the on the post, she she went full one name uh, yeah. for the for the this movie. But um, but yeah, no, she's great. She's really great in this movie. Um, and then Carol Reed, in terms of like this being Carol Reed's movies, like he's another guy that he's one of these directors that just did a ton of great work back in the day. Um, I haven't seen many of his of his films. I like Our Man in Havana, uh, the Alec Guinness one, where he's, it's kind of like an everyman gets swept up into intrigue, a lot like the, a lot like Third Man is. Um, but uh, but man, I feel like even just like poking around looking at trailers of his movies, every one of his movies had like a black and white, really spooky, empty street at night. Yeah, like he yeah. Shot, there's all these like spotlights like at the those. end of the street, shooting back through fog, and it's eerie as hell. And like his movie, like the Odd, Odd Man Out, sounds awesome, which is like now like creeping its way up on the top to the top of my like two watch list. Which is like a yeah. wounded Irish national nationalist leader attempts to evade police following a failed robbery in Belfast. I mean, that's literally just like Reservoir Dogs. I was yeah. gonna say that's a caldron yeah. if I've ever heard it. Yeah. I'm shocked you haven't seen it. <laughs> Wait, can we talk about Graham Greene for a second? The writer? Oh, yeah, Let's talk about Graham yes, Greene. He is so interesting. Because, like, uh, Graham Greene, like, this isn't even his first collaboration with Carol Reed. They worked on their pre- they worked on their previous film together, which was The Fallen Idol. And, like, Carol Reed and him are apparently, like, very tight. And it seems that Graham Greene really likes writing stories about, like, like war-torn countries. Because, like, he also wrote he also wrote the book and and novel the quiet american which is like which he wrote the screenplay for the quiet american movie with mankowitz and you know it's about a a a young naive american and a single a cynical older british diplomat disagree over politics in 1952 vietnam over a beautiful young native girl so it's just like right before right before the vietnam war breaks out you know like just all that turmoil from like i guess like 52 that's like what french occupation at that time that's when it was still like a French colony. Holly uh, is kind of like a self-insert almost because Graham was also an author and wrote the screenplay as a novella, um, which they eventually published. But yeah, interesting tidbits. Well, and the, the idea of, of setting a movie just in the rubble of, of World War II, like literally in the rubble. Like there are chase scenes that take place, like you sliding down hills of rocks that have been just gathered off to the side and in the opening VO of just like, eh, it's a little bombed. It's been bombed around a bit. But it's not even just like European cities, right? Like not only is it like a bombed out city and like the rubble looks great, but like Vienna was known for its like architectural splendor and stuff like that. So it's like 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 a postcard city that has just been like bombed to the ground. And then they're like, we're going to shoot this absolutely texturally gorgeous noir here. My head immediately goes to the bicycle thieves and that Italian neorealist stuff that did the same thing. Like they just got out there with cameras and started shooting stuff like in the middle of these cities that were still, you know, more or less destroyed. Um, but for this to be so like weirdly happy-go-lucky sounding was it's 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 strange. It's just the juxtaposition just sounds so good and like. You know, and it's not only like within like the subject matter and the music itself, but also when you juxtapose it against the genre, right? Like everything else is like the big booming horns and like the like the huge bands and stuff like that. And it's, this is just one street musician with a zither carrying this entire thing. And I do love having the backstory about how uh, Carol Reed just fell in love with his zithering and they became the best of friends. Makes it even better. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. 
I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. We'd run anything if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Now let's get into some brilliant moments, uh, which I kind of want to talk about the just I, we mentioned it a couple of times, this opening monologue, uh, the opening VO. And there's a couple of versions of it that, that floated around. Apparently, there's there's one version where, where um, Joseph Cotton, where yeah. and that's his the, character did that's the, the That's the theatrical release for the U.S. Had for Joseph the U.S. Cotton. Yeah. Yeah. The other version, the, the rest of it had Carol Reed. Which yep. that's the one that I have that I just I rewatched uh, the Carol Reed version and just how casual he is about everything. Oh, 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 did, did I ever tell you the story about it? Like it's he's kind of stammering through it. He sounds like he's got a, a few drinks in him and he's telling this story to a buddy at a bar, you know. And it's it's actually it, it weirdly I think it sets the tone for the rest of the performances in the movie because I feel like they're so they're so much more casual than most other movies of the era. I think. Like there, it, it felt to me um, a much more modern sort of performance because there's there's scenes where he's just like kind of picking at thing picking at the drapes while he's talking to and it's, it seems very casual and very and and, and much less sort of um, performative for lack of a better word than a lot of the other sort of film noir kind of you know film fatale type, type yeah it's stuff a very it's is. a very like oh by the way. Very, very natural performances. And it's all kicked off to me with that, that Carol Reed's VO at the beginning. That's just, you know, I was more of a Constantinople chap before the war. I only know Vienna from the black market days. Like those, it was great. It was a great way to start the movie. I feel like, especially in the first 30 minutes or so, like you said, how casual the dialogue is, but there are also just like some awkward moments, which is very realistic. It's just very, yeah, very casual dialogue. The scene where he first meets Anna at, backstage at the play, and they like can't figure out how to walk past each other because her her costume is so big. There's that, but Stuff I think like one that. of my one of my favorite lines it's after Holly learns that Harry is dead and he's telling uh, the con no not the concierge uh, the guy the book club guy, and he's telling oh, right. him about it. Yeah, and uh, the other guy goes, "Oh, you're that's awkward." And Harry goes, "That's what you or Holly goes, that's what you say to someone whose friend died. That's awkward." Heard of Harry Lyme? Well, I've heard of him, of course, but I didn't exactly know him. I was going to stay with him, but he died Thursday. Goodness, that's awkward. That what you say to people after death? Goodness, that's awkward. Mr. Martins! Excuse me. Telephone. My favorite scene is like, well, I have two, right? Like, my A, the Harry Lyme reveal, right? And talking about like, we're going to talk about like, German expressionism in, in influence on like, uh, on cinema like on cinematography in this film it's like they there was a lot of french flags on that set because like they are cutting off light like right here you know it's just like very controlled very tight and like that shot of like you see the cat walking down the street and then like hanging out by his legs right after she says like the cat only liked harry and you know and then like the light like that woman turns on her light and again like i said a very directional, very controlled light source just like lights up only his face, not the background, nothing else. And then he has that like smile, like that, like that, that charming zither smile as the camera just like dollies in. My experience having watched it for the first time three days ago or so is I just kept waiting for Orson Welles and I was like, oh, okay, he has to be like Harry Lime if Harry Lime is alive. And like the light shines on him and I feel like you just know that that's Harry. Even if you don't know he's alive yet, you you just know. 
and then there's a there's a beat and he says harry there's this cool like uh like see like uh convo that like bogdanovich has about uh orson wells and he's just like bogdanovich talks about how orson orson wells really liked the part because it was a real star part to which like he asked well what's a star part and then wells goes it's when they talk about you for an hour before you actually show up so it's just like everybody's just like harry lime harry lime harry lime harry lime and then like talk about a hit like textbook pitch perfect reveal of like this is harry lime and he has that like he has that smirk like you just got the joke 15 minutes after i said it kind of smile and it's just it uh it's so good i love his little smirk too because what the movie does leading up to that is really tell us how close he and Holly were because at the beginning, you're not quite sure. It's not like he breaks out into tears when he first finds out that Harry is dead, but as you learn that they were actually like kind of best friends and imagine you have faked your own death and your best friend of a very long time finally sees you and you're just like, Hey buddy, what's going on? Like, it's such a good reaction. Yeah. It's like, it took you long enough. If you're not immediately sort of taken by Harry Lime, like I, I, the movie loses a lot, right? Like, because it, it, this is another thing, we, we might as well talk about this at right now too, but like Harry Lime might be one of the worst people ever put to film, I feel like. Like all of, like he was, he was responsible for a whole bunch of children dying of meningitis or, or, or worse, or like going, going mad with meningitis, right? Because he was black market reselling bad penicillin. I think we're going to get to the uh, the Ferris wheel scene, but like, I think that that scene is honestly like one of the like proto Tony Soprano scenes and like everything that like Harry Lyme embodies in that scene, I think is like the exact allure and appeal of like Tony Soprano that comes like what, like 70 years later, which is just like, here's a man that is responsible for some atrocious stuff, but he just like oozes charm and charisma and is just like, so affable you can't hate him and it's that that struggle to like recti- reconcile the terrible deeds he's done with just his like inherent natural likability that just makes for such a compelling performance and like and like character i mean he's i to me a textbook sociopath like he knows yeah. exactly oh, what he's doing he has absolutely no remorse for anything he's done and yet he's a genius like i think holly thinks he's a genius and he is not harry is way ahead of everyone and he's a he is an evil genius and like you were saying clint that crime i mean it, it kind of just struck me when i was watching it because i'm current a little podcast recommendation i'm currently listening to this podcast called the retrievals and it's about this nurse who uh, steals fentanyl from uh, a clinic where women were getting egg retrievals and replaces it with saline. And like having that in my head too, while I watched that scene, I was like, this guy might be one of the most villainous people I've seen in a movie in quite some time. He's a totally, bad dude. Totally vile. Um, but again though, like it just to, to take it back to this reveal that he's still alive and that, that subtle little charming grin that he gives, like we've spent, what i mean an hour of this movie is it i mean it's literally it's like right at um, half line yeah. I, 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 made right pause it. I made sure to um, pause it right when it happened it's just like the the like it's the that player head is like right yeah so and and we've even and at this point we've even have we seen uh all the evidence at this point yes yes, like yes. That, like that monta- yeah so it, this this is just it happened just prior to the scene right? i think like so, it ha- so it the ha- police show holly the evidence and he got shows- drunk Right, and then he went to Anna's. Then he apartment. goes to see Anna. 
Yeah, and then the cat runs away, and then he's like locking right. down. Get me the Harry Lime file and get Mr. Martin's a large whiskey. I don't need your drinks, Callaway. You will. So, so we know what he's. We know what Harry's done, and we've spent an hour looking for him. We know there's there's some bit of intrigue around his death. Nothing is quite what it seems. Um, we know that there's two two things at play. One is is the uh, the chief inspector, the uh, um, Callaway. Oh, what's his name? Callaway. Callaway. Not, Cal- not Callahan, because he's not. Not Callahan. Callaway. <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah. I love the name mix-ups. They're so yeah. good and so yeah. casual. Sorry. <laughs> so we know that we know that Callaway is a hard ass, and he's kind of the antagonist of the first bit of the movie. Um, but then we find out what. Harry did and why he's being and it even, to the point where he even convinces his best friend that he's like yeah I gotta get out of here like I'm gonna I'm gonna leave him I'm gonna ditch him but then you know if we don't when we meet Harry Lyme if we don't immediately be like oh look at that guy like the whole movie like loses a lot of steam because it's like that you know for um for Holly to be so committed and so like I, I gotta find my friend and they're like you guys gotta in- investigate this murder like he's just looking for justice for his friend um, and we Do still got to feel some of that for, for, for Holly Martin's story to matter, you know? But also yeah. for Anna's, because this woman is smitten with him. And I think there's exactly. this really great line when we first meet her where uh, she says like something like, I don't care how he died. I just know I want to be Ted too. And it's like, that's, that's pretty intense. Like yeah. he must be some and kind of guy. We just have to be able to understand that to a certain degree, you know? And so like having, having Orson Welles show up and grin, and it's like, uh, you, you kind of immediately forget uh the whole sequence prior to this where it's like yeah no he was swapping out penicillin with bad penicillin and all of these children are dead now it's like jesus i go back to the fact that it's it's orson wells and i feel like because i was waiting for the orson the entire time he was just like hey he was like he was smirking at me i felt like and it was unnerving it's a star role you know you know what he was doing I feel like he was saying that because he didn't have to work that much on it (laughs) but still do you know the title role Speaking of like, it's a star role and like he only shows up halfway through it. Like there's also like the anecdote that he was like super late to set and like why the AD has been complaining about him like in the decades, the decades. For 70 years. Yeah, Yeah. for 70 years. (laughs) It's because apparently like he, like they started shooting without him. So the AD had to put on like the overcoat and hat. And like, it's like when you see Harry Lime running through the streets and like the shadow thrown up against like brick and stuff like that. That's actually the AD. It's just it's, actually, like, it's it's Guy Hamilton who went on yeah. to direct a couple of Bond movies and yeah. like he went on to be a fairly big director. All of those like really memorable shots of Harry Lime's shadow are not with Orson Welles. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's basically like the shark like it's like it's a hundred percent Cal Reed was like, My shark is an asshole and I can't, and he's right. not here. So like how do we shoot with the illusion of the shark? Right. Orson Welles, the original Bruce the Shark. Shark, yeah. But I will say to your earlier point, Clint, Callaway, you just kind of start by thinking he's a bad cop. Like, and then you kind of start like you want him to solve this mystery because you don't know Harry's a bad guy. And like, we've talked about movies that turn into different movies halfway through. I I think we mentioned it during the Parasite episode. This movie completely changes what it's about halfway through. And it's so cool. I'm not convinced Callaway was ever a good cop. (laughs) He's not the most... Competent, I mean, he's I he's righteous, but yes, I, I think confident, la- lack of confidence yeah. is probably the word. 
I think he is trying his best. I don't know how good his best is. Again, setting that kind of thing in the rubble of Vienna after the war. And it's like everybody's, and they, even the opening VO like establishes that too. It's like, oh, they're good enough chaps. They did their best, you know, like that, that sort of thing. Like here's a guy that's like, he's, he might not be the best cop. Uh, he might not even be like on any sort of side of justice. Like he just happens to be on the, in the right on this one. You know, like, I mean, there's, there's no telling, you know, where he comes down. And frankly, it doesn't matter because like the first time we meet him is he's a suspicious guy at a funeral, which is like a cheat code for like, I don't like that guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and then right after that, to go backward a little bit, it's that bar scene, which I also really like a lot. He is sitting there just insulting this guy's dead best friend to his face. Again, going back to those awkward social situations. It's he's like, a jerk. It's wonderful. He's a jerk. Like, who yeah. says that? Well, in fantasy, he did. Right. In fairness, he did know at that time, which we didn't, that like the guy in but question didn't. was mur murdering children. Yeah. With yeah. Bad penicillin. Yeah. But we it's didn't like in know retrospect, that in Hollywood. Yeah. 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 In retrospect, the kids' gloves were, were very well off, and that's fine. Best friend I ever had. That sounds like a cheap novelette. Yeah. Why write cheap novelettes? I'm afraid I've never heard of it. Well, what's your name again? Holly Martin. Sorry. The other thing I love, that, that opening bar scene, this is another thing, and this is a, a guy who I love in this entire movie, is Bernard Lee, uh, Sergeant Payne, who, Bernard Lee, who went on to be M, this is the, another Bond connection there, but um, him being just like, such a nice dude. Oh, he, the he's guy the is, best. He's such, he is a teddy bear throughout this he entire movie. Even when he Even when he punches uh, Holly in the face, He's just like, all right, there you go. There you go, bud. Come on, just hop up. He's just like merrily doing his job the whole time uh, and just an, an, just a sweetheart about it. And it's <laughs> like that energy in this movie is so so unexpected and, and so unusual that I just, I love that. Please be careful, sir. Back we come. Written anything lately? Take him to Sarkis. Don't hit him again if he behaves. And you go carefully there. It's a military hotel. I'm so glad to have met you, sir. I've read quite a few of your books. But it's also perfect too, right? Because like, a not like it's there's so, like that's what it's kind of what makes the narrative so tight, right? Because not only is he like like the affable goofball, like makes everybody like everybody's like happy to see him. You know, he's a nice guy, yeah. right? But it, he's also like he's also like the narrative conduit to which you understand that like Polly is a successful successful pole author you know yeah and at the same time he's at like, least got one fan in town, yeah he, you know? he's got one he's got one one fan and at the same time right like it's also kind of like the good mo like the good into the movie motivation of what does like harry line into holly right because like harry line kills him and then that's the that's like the moment where like like because there's all of that shakiness. Like, I understand Harry's a bad guy, but he's been my best friend since I was a kid. And then, like, he watches him gun down, uh, like, Sergeant Payne in, like, cold blood right there. And that's kind of, like, what flips the switch in his mind to, like, chase him down the sewer. Hey, come back, sir! Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Ferris wheel is just perfect. You got some good Dutch angles. And I will say, I genuinely felt a little nauseated watching that scene, and I felt like it was because of the askew camera angles, but also just how, again, evil Harry is. And he's just sociopathing like no other. Like, he he just reads everything Holly is doing and reacts to it, and it's he's a genius. The energy of their back and forth, like they, t- ironically, they talk over each other a little bit, which, which is, I, I think, also a, a, a more modern uh, than, you know, kind of an ahead of its time thing to do in the, in, in the 40s. But like um, the, it felt like a stage play, like the yeah. two of them going at it. Like they, were, they would cut out to kind of a wider two shot inside the, the Ferris wheel. And then they would, um, you know, just just the the back and forth was so quick, and so the the cues were all really tight between the lines, and it was it was fascinating. It was two best friends, two childhood friends, right? Which yeah. is kind of what I want to draw attention to is like how thematically apropos the the that scene is, right? Is it? It's like it takes place in an amusement park during the day, but there is nobody at it, right? Like children are dying of meningitis it's like post-war like there's clearly no room for fun in vienna at this time and like nobody's having fun no no one's having fun here and i think like just like the best visual metaphor of of that is like meet me at the old like meet me at the old amusement park which isn't even like broken down because it works they like there's literally an attendant that like helps them get on the Ferris wheel. So it's like in operation. It's just no one's there. No also one's not the there. safest Ferris wheel because you can just open the damn door and just push someone out, it's, which is what yeah, I thought was right? going to happen. It's the 40s, you know. They... What I really felt the whole time is this tension that, and I feel like I was supposed to feel this way, that he was going to push Holly out. And there's this very intentional, I think, move by Holly where he kind of grips the side of of the cart to be like all right i think that was the implication i think that that was very much a like dude do i have to do i have to kill you right now because i will you believe that he would even though he is being affable and they're bantering like friends like you do at this point we've established how terrible harry is and yeah he would push his best friend of so many years out the damn ferris wheel i firmly believe that like harry lime is such a great like proto tony soprano of like he can just go from like affable to like are, do, do you think you're going to be alive in the next five minutes? Because if you say the wrong thing right now, there's a very good reality that that might not be the case. And that's why I think it's so convincing that Anna would be so taken with him because, yeah, as, as terrible as he can be, you can tell he can also be really charming and convincing, um, which I think makes him a really good villain. The other thing that I like about this, speaking of villains, is he gets his villain monologue. He has like two in there. 
the one about the the dots down down below and like how many how many how much would it cost you to just one of those dots just stops moving forever that's and... that's my favorite line in the movie look down there would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever if i offered you twenty thousand pounds for every dot that stopped would you really old man tell me to keep my money or would you Calculate how many dots you could afford to spin. Free of income tax, I mean. And then the, the cuckoo clock thing is, is also a great line. Well, what the fella said, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. I love that he basically says, like, under the Borgias, there was war for 30 years and they invented the Ninja Turtles. And... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but he has, like, I, I feel like you could take the three best lines in this movie and you can argue this, but they all come out of that two minutes. Because I was wa- re-watching that specific scene. It's about, like, two and a half minutes. And he gets so many good lines. He gets the, look at all those dots monologue. He gets the, the government's just as bad as I am monologue. And then he gets the cuckoo clock. It's the star part, the star role scene, you know? Like his, because when we first meet him, it's just the smile and then he runs away. And then it's, it's Guy Hamilton doing the running away. But then uh, this is the scene where he really gets to show up in this movie. We were talking about those too. Like, like don't forget like the distant third awesomest line that comes out of that where he's just like, oh, Holly. You and I aren't heroes. The world doesn't make any heroes outside of your stories. Like, that's just like kicking it off. <laughs> you didn't expect me to give myself up. Why not? It's a far, far better thing that I do with the old limelight, the fall of the curtain. No. Oh, Holly, you and I aren't heroes. The world doesn't make any heroes. You've got plenty of Outside of your stories. I've got to be so careful. You did mention a little bit about Dutch angles in this scene, but I don't even think that's the best scene with them like i the dutch angles in this like dutch angles are are such a funny sort of shorthand for like let's make this more interesting i'm gonna tilt the frame just a little bit it's like but the the camera angles in this movie i think are are so much more than that there's a the scene that i i really really liked was it's early in the movie 20 some odd minutes into the movie they're in harry's apartment uh he's talking to the landlord guy and the way that it's the way that it's tilted, it's always tilted so that Holly is kind of looking uphill, right? Like it's every, he's, he's always kind of on, on his heels a little bit because of the Dutch angle. And that there's a handful of scenes, the, the biggest, uh, you know, he's standing, um, you know, standing at the window talking to the guy and it's tilted left to right. So it's like, he's a much taller man than this old guy, but he still feels like he's on the defensive because he's looking uphill. Basically for the whole first half of the movie, every time he's in, a, there's a scene a few minutes after this where they're both sitting in chairs next to each other. But the way that the Dutch angle works is Holly's on the on his back foot. And it's like that right up until, and I might be projecting and maybe this might be one of those things that I'm just like really hoping is true, but I think it is. Like I, I went back and looked at it again, but it's when he's touring the kids' ho- the children's hospital is when he's finally looking downhill. Um, oh. And, and so like the way, that the, the way that the frame is canted all the way through the movie puts Holly at a disadvantage, right? And there's even the, the first scene, the scene I'm talking about in the apartment, it's when the landlord starts yelling at him at the very end of the scene. He's yelling at him in German, um, you know, and the kid is watching from the door and, that's, and it's a big wide shot of the room. And it's tilted so that like I it look it's tilted more than it has been 
at any other point in the scene, it looks like Holly might just fall out of the frame, honestly. Like he's so on his heels in that shot. I don't know. All that's is that Dutch angles are, are such a uh, kind of a, a funny little trope that can be sort of tossed around just, just as like an aesthetic thing to tack on to a scene or whatever. But here, like it's, it's a blocking, it's a character blocking thing in, in this movie. And throughout the movie, it's just anybody who's supposed to be like on the defensive and on it, the, like they're at the bottom of the camp. They're looking uphill. It's, it's great. I, for some reason, almost looked at it like we're seeing the situation through Holly's eyes. So every time I saw a Dutch angle, I was kind of like, oh, I should be really paying attention. There's something askew, which actually ended up being something of a misdirect, because like you were saying, there are a lot of Dutch angles in Harry's apartment, um, particularly when he's talking to the porter. But the porter was telling the truth. Like, he was dead, dead, I, at least I think, because it was Crabbins. Um but I, I took it a totally different way, but that's yeah. an interesting way to look well, at it. Well, I mean, it's, I, no, I, I think it's the same. That's kind of six and one and a half a dozen the other, right? Because I, I feel like it's, it's all, it's all the, about what Holly doesn't know at any given, given time. Like when he finally gets the full picture and the full scope of what, uh, what Harry's done to these children at the hospital, like that's when it shifts. Um, but when he doesn't know what's happening, when he's not, when, when there's, you know, when things don't add up and when he, he literally doesn't speak the language, uh, this guy, he's like, he's having to translate. He can't, you know, it's, it's not until that he kind of gets a full picture of what's going on that, that it starts to shift. But, but the, anyway, all that to say, like the, the canted angle, the Dutch frames in this movie are, I, they're, they're more than just like, you know, uh, an era specific cool look, <laughs> you know? I have no evidence. I, I, I saw nothing. I said nothing. It's not my business. We'll make it your business. It's not even just the Dutch tilts that are so awesome, which, by the way, I actually think that, like I, I started like noticing like when I was watching it, I was like, oh, there's so many Dutch tilts in this. I started looking for the frames that weren't tilted. Yeah. Which is, right? You know, because like yeah. they, it, there's so many of them. But it's they start not, to stand out as, yeah. as the different part. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's not only that, right? It's like how like how he composes shots, right? So it's like when you go back and like look at like the first meeting when he's like meeting Callaway, right? And it's just like the way it's framed where it's just like he's in like silhouette against Callaway who's in the center of the frame lighting a cigarette and then like right to the third to like round out the composition so there's like a nice clean diagonal running line it's like the shot like the like the bottle of whiskey and like then it like cuts to the reverse and it's also like immaculately framed where like Callaway is in the foreground and like that like a quarter face there's the whiskey and then it's like and then it, it, it's Joseph Cotton and behind him is like the bartender in like a in a soft focus in the bar with the leading line that's like running right to his head. So it's just like all the leading lines are like, look here. And then like when they get to the hospital, the shot that stood out to me in the hospital was one of the establishing shots. So they wanted to show like how many children were in this corridor. So you needed to have like a lot, like you had to have that really long shot going down because like they are like full body walking toward the, like, them as full bodies is like taking up literally a third of the frame. So you need to have that camera pulled all the way back. The problem with that is, is that this was shot on a soundstage where they don't have ceilings. So they're just like, just park a medicine cart in front of the camera. So it's like, you're looking through the medicine cart, which like, like just like uh, flags off the lack of a ceiling where all like studio lights would be. And then like, you just get this, 
gorgeous long shot with the like lines that just like frame within the frame kind of box. So you're just like, I'm looking right here. And it's just like, man, this is, these, these are the touches that get you an Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Talking about the the scene at the bar where the two of them are talking and one's in silhouette and the other's the focus of the screen. Like the, the scene that always pops into my head is actually from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like Spielberg uses that a ton. There's a, there's a, it's where Indy's drunk in the bar and Belloc is there talking to him about like burying a pocket watch in the sand, like that whole scene. It's shot the exact same way. Like it's, it's, there's one character in profile in the foreground out of focus and the focus of the, the, the is, is, you know, is, is dead onto the camera. Um, you, you, you can also make the argument that he like Spielberg definitely repurposed like the hairy lime shots as like, uh, for Indy as like the hero shots, like how many, how many shots of Indiana Jones is it's just like the shadow it's walks. Just into his the shadow. Bar. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. like the shed, shadow well, with the fedora walks into the bar. And just like, Oh, Indy's here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The guy that shot this, like we can talk to you about, about some of the cinematography here. The, um, uh, Robert Krasker is the, the guy's name that, and he, he did, he's another guy that like worked a ton. I don't know how many of his movies I've seen. He did brief encounter which is a David Lean, a non-epic David Lean movie, uh, but it's still a, a really cool one. The thing that strikes me about this particular era, of, especially in black and white, is the, those old lenses that have this like soft vignette kind of feel around the edges of them. It just makes everything look so cool. It just makes everything just gorgeous. I, I love those old lenses. I remember, uh, uh, what's his name? He used them for the lighthouse. Um, he used like old, old Eggers used like old vintage lenses that did that sort of thing in, in the lighthouse. But uh, there's something about it on black and white photography that's just incredible. But one of the other shots that I wanted to talk about in terms of like camera work at the time, and this is, uh, you know, sort of a, a bumping the lamp award for the week. Uh, there's that scene where it's right before the hot, the Harry Lime reveal. Um, and Holly's talking to Anna and Holly's standing in front of a window and it's obviously that it's on, on a set and there's a painting of the, the cityscape behind him out of the window. But then the camera trucks forward and it pushes into the plants and then the plants part and then we tilt out of the window down onto the street of Vienna and we see, that's when we first see Harry walk up and look up at the window and then retreat back to the doorway. So like it's a, it's a movement that goes through some plants that are on the windowsill and then tilts down to see it's two different shots stitched together by like I I, I was curious because I knew they like they couldn't they weren't really shooting out outside that window, but then there's a there's like a, a spotlight there's like an iris dissolve iris out dissolve that they hide in the top left corner of the frame and I was like framing through it and it just slowly expands and it dissolves from like a close up of the plants to a close up of different plants that then get pulled apart like curtains. And then we tilt down and it's just one of those, like, like they did that in the forties, you know, it's like, that's how they didn't, they didn't have to, there's so many other ways that they could have done that too. Just establishing that Harry, that, that there's a figure on the street who's coming up and then he's hiding, right? There are so many ways to do that. You could just cut down and look behind his shoulder and like, you know, look up at the window and you see a silhouette in the window move the way that Holly's moving. Like you can match cut it that way. So many ways that you can establish guy on the street is watching and now he's hiding, right? Like that's what that shot does. But they did it all in one, one continuous move and the camera's moving at the same speed in both of them. It's really, really skillfully done to stitch those two shots together. Um, 
and it makes it ties the it ties the space together in a way that's way more intriguing and and you know and way more interesting than just a series of cuts. Um, but that that shot in particular, like I, I watched it and I like paused it, scooted it back. Like how they do that? You can kind of frame through it, and you can you can just see where like the camera moves in on the stage to the plants, fills the frame with the plants. And then it dissolves to the other one. And you can kind of see the, the actual street come into focus a little bit behind some of the other. It's, it's cool to it's, it's kind of just step through it frame by frame. But I mean, it's a real lamp bump. Like lamp bumping is, lamp the, bump. is that thing you go for the extra mile and whoever notices it. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, do lo I really love all the shots of that, of that window. That window is such, like, it's almost ominous. It's like someone's always watching. There really aren't that many locations in this movie, I realized. It's... It's basically like there's there's the apartment and then there's the bar and the street and the Ferris wheel. But that window, so much happens there. I'm a big fan of the final shot of the movie too, right? Like two things I want to say about this. A, I don't know how much I've talked about it on this podcast, but Clint, I complain to you a f***ing ton about how much I hate three-hour movies. And the fact that this movie is an hour and 40 minutes long and it, can just, it, it just bought itself enough time to just hang on this shot of her walking down the street of the cemetery to just pass Holly. Like yeah. they don't, they wouldn't do that today. You know, it's yeah, just the, the fact that she just straight up walks past him and that's how it ends. And we spend like 30 seconds oh, waiting yeah. for no, it to it's, happen. It's like what, like, cause like it just builds the anticipation. Like what's she going to do when she gets there? You know, it's yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to, to your point, Alex too, like, I, you know, it's, it, there's something about Holly that makes him think this is going to end well, like this is going to get tied up in a boat. Like, I mean, he's, he writes pulp novels, right? Like he's, he deals in heroes and villains and good and versus evil and like all of that stuff because, you know, he, he writes, he writes paperbacks, like he writes Western adventure things. And like, so for him to sort of assume that there's a shot for him and, and Anna to, to just like, leave arm and arm and apparently at one point in the script there that was how it ended like they really? left they left hand in hand or something at some point but the fact that she just cruises right past him is so wonderfully perfect um like i it's great just and walking i, I just <laughs> and found doesn't whole, even yeah. look at him it's well she's it's the most great. consistent character in this movie like she yeah. she has she loves harry and she's not going to change it. And, you know, I, I felt for her because she is really, like, dealing with it a lot throughout this movie. But, yeah, I just feel like if it did end with them walking arm in arm into the sunset, it, it wouldn't. she wouldn't have been as consistent. And I, that's why I what? do also love that final shot. She's just like, no, nope, I am who I am. Yeah. Like, it, it would have been tacked on and it would have been tacked on and they would have been doing it for the wrong reasons. They would have been mm -hmm. doing it because that's what we expect. And the fact that we didn't expect it and the fact that it goes against, you know, what normally happens in this kind of movie uh, makes it worth talking about 70 years later. I never truly felt like I knew Holly's motivations. I never knew if he was trying to get the girl or genuinely trying to do the right thing. And I don't think he knew either. So I like that the movie ends with him not getting the girl, but kind of like getting not justice, but yeah. Version of I, I, I agree with you. I definitely think he's like on that kind of like spectrum. Like, you know, it's mm -hmm. just like, how much does he really want either of these things? And it's like, yeah. what's he actually motivated by? It's yeah, kind of a kind of a dog chasing a car the whole time. Just like, I am not sure what what's happening here. But I just I need to go and find something. That's what it feels. It feels um, like he's just moving to the next step every single time, yeah. not knowing where the end is.
honest, sensible, sober, harmless Holly Martins. Holly, what a silly name. Let's put this on some movie lists. It has been talked about on Cinefix a lot. Um, per our 100 most talked about movies on Cinefix video that we did, granted, like five years ago. Uh, 17 mentions and seven picks, seven actual picks on movie lists. Uh, I couldn't find, I couldn't find all seven. I dug, I dug around. I couldn't. So I couldn't you know that it. there are seven, but you don't know all seven. According according to our records, like the one record that survives, uh, it's it's seven picks. Uh, but it's included in best character introductions uh, for Harry Lime. Yes. Um, yeah. Which I think makes it best twists for the same. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Harry Lime's still alive. Uh, because like they're not dead is kind of a twist sort of oh, subgenre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, supporting roles that stole the show. Uh, Orson Welles got that, which is kind of hair splitting because Orson Welles himself thinks it's a star role. So, um, so that's not technically accurate anymore. So maybe it's just six. It's a star role. So yeah. You know, you... And then yeah, the titular third man. Um, and the other one that I could find was the uh, 21 best character departures of all time was a list that we made. I'm not sure why we went with that 21. Is ve- that is a very uh, nice euphemism for dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a tragic one. But the, the one from this one was, um, was Anna walking right past Holly um, as, as one of the best sort of character departures. Um, just because... She's just leaving without a word, which is so perfect. Um, but what other lists does it need to be on? I don't know if we have a villain monologues, but he is <laughs> the best. Is he not on? We did do a monologues it, at one point. Is it not on the cinematography list? Um, we've done best cinematographers, uh, but we haven't done best. We did it, we did a most beautiful, uh, and we did best cinematographers. Um, which um, Krasker wasn't on uh, that list. But, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, like if we were to do a best looking movies of some, some sort, like it would end up in the black and white category for sure. At, at minimum, a mention. Um, but I'd be, I'd be hard pressed to, to give something else. I mean, it's been on seven lists. I mean, that has it's to been be on up. seven lists, yeah. supposedly. That has to be up there for like most. Uh... Yeah. I'm assuming that we did proper research on it five years ago. Uh, and I'm trusting that. Um, I mean, if we had a list for like a lead role that has the least amount of screen time, that would 100% be Harry. Yeah. If yeah, it is I a mean, lead that's role. Sort of, that's sort of what the supporting roles that stole the show was yeah, doing. Yeah, true. I mean, it's on the um, Joseph Cotton list of his biggest. Tots in Joseph Cotton movies? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, Joseph, detectives? Cotton let, Joseph Cotton's letting everybody know that he's on the, he's in the, all of every great director's favorite movie of theirs. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's so great. I love that. Um, I do like, I do like that he's a, not a detective detective. I, I love that oh, brand yeah. of detective. So yeah. Uh, just the sort of regular guy that gets kind of scooped up into a bigger, a bigger mystery is always, always my favorite kind of detective. So he, he this, probably make that list best detectives um film noir still haven't done a a whole film noir list that's that's Uh, that's that's a layup it'd be on there yeah yeah easy any other obvious ones that we're we're forgetting 
best zither. Though we haven't talked about the side characters in this. Not the third man, but the other two men. Because there was also that Baron Kurtz guy was also like a really like that was he was very Peter Laurie kind of kind of energy. But he and just holding that little puppy that then later showed up at the doctor's office. I would was like that, that just them confirming that they were in cahoots? Like I was so yeah, thrown off when I saw the puppy. That's how I read it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were definitely in cahoots. Uh, yeah. I guess we'll get to it to the Nicolas Cage section, but I have a lot of thoughts on the not fleshed out doctors and the uh, uh, yeah. charity that Holly was coming out there to write press like <laughs> PR for. Let's let's talk about that scene because this, this him doing uh, him showing up to to just be a guest lecturer or something at at this book club. Uh, first of all, it was great because he he thinks he's getting like dragged off to his death for for that like he gets he's getting kidnapped at that point as far as he knows, and then he's just like oh right that thing I agreed to three nights ago so that this guy would pay for my hotel. Um, just just a hilarious like face plant of a of a speech that he gave too i guess what's great about that scene is it exact it talks about exactly what alex was saying that like holly is not as smart as he thinks he is right because he's just like he's a literal he's a literal dime store not like dime store novelist and then like he's like trying to talk like oh yeah i'm an author and then like leave it to the one asshole in vienna to be like so what do you think of james joyce yeah <laughs> Uh, what do you mean? Where do you put James, James Joyce? Joyce? Yeah, if that isn't just the the like a comment section being like, "Hey, well, what about this movie?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also um, loved it because at that point in the movie, I had forgotten that he was supposed to give this lecture, yeah, and I love yeah. that both Holly and I forgot that he was there yeah, to give a no, lecture. It's great. Yeah. It's another reason why this is such a well put together movie. Like, it's it's so funny how how that how that whole sequence panned out is great. Again, I always go back to these little awkward social interactions in this movie, and and that is one of them. This guy is like standing in front of this group, trying to flub his way through doing a lecture. Not not even trying, really. No, either. no, he's just, not. He's yeah. just sitting there, just like uh, I don't. Uh, sure, I like to <laughs> denouement. Uh, would you mind repeating that question? I said, where would you put Mr. James Joyce? In what category? Can I ask, is Mr. Martins engaged on a new book? Yes. It's called The Third Man. A novel, Mr. Martins? It's a murder story. I've just started it. Shall we torf? This is true or false. Uh, torf. Play along at torf. home. We all know what torf is. You don't we all know what torf is. If you've gotten this far, you know what torf is. All right. <laughs> We, do we not do the casting close calls? I got one of those. That might be in my Torf. Do you know who Reed originally wanted to play Holly? Is this your Torf? I think this is one of them. So let's just get it. I think, yeah. Somebody better Torf or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it. Because I do yeah. know. I don't know if I know. Okay. Because, how, about, yeah. how about Alex, you go and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. You do your additionally Torf, torf yeah. Yeah. Uh, afterwards. His original choice for Holly Martins was uh, James Stewart. Uh, but producer David Selznick had Joseph Cotton under contract and insisted on using him. 
Also, uh, Cary Grant was proposed to star as Martins and Noel Coward as Lime, following Graham Greene's original decision of them being British, but then determined that the film be American-friendly, proposed James Stewart and Robert Meacham in their respective roles. However, to avoid the expense of borrowing stars from other studios, he used Joseph Cotton and uh, Volley from his own stable. Mitchum would have been great. Mitchum, yeah, I know. Mitchum would have been I was thinking good, that too. Yeah. Like he got to do this in North by Northwest and in like a handful of movies like that, that guy that doesn't, doesn't think he's in like, you know, regular guy getting thrown into intrigue kind of thing like that. He, he did a ton of those movies. Meacham was in jail at the time for weed possession. So that is why. Mitchum, Mitchum went to jail for, yeah, he's not he, he, was like the, he was like the first Hollywood star to get arrested for smoking weed. Oh, good for him. Yeah, <laughs> that's a dude, a trailblazer. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really he, ahead he, of his time. Good. In in my mind, he is like what John would have, John Wayne would have been like if John Wayne was cool. If John Wayne was cool, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We all think about that. Yeah, uh, I'll go true. That was yeah, was it, James that's, Stewart. That, that's that's not true. Yes, those yeah. are all true. You guys got one. Yeah. Next bit of Torpid. All right. Orson Welles refused to be filmed in Vienna's sewers, sewers, sewers during production as a result of a sewer set had to be built on location for all of Orson's scenes. In the scene, when Harry is panicking to see from which angle the voice of the police team comes from, the camera angle is so narrow because the set was of a limited height and size. True or false? True. I'm going to go, I'm going to go false, but I'm going to go partially false because they did shoot oh. some in an actual sewer. N not with Orson Welles, though. Okay, I'm I'm going I'm going false just because I think part of it is false. Okay, so Clint is false. Cal is true. Yeah, Clint, you are right. Oh, uh, what, it is the... it is partially false. Tayo and I are so tricky. You can never tell our lies. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm counting on. <laughs> but uh, yes, so only Orson Welles close-ups were shot in London film studios, while a body double was used for wide shots on location in the sewers of Vienna. Orson Welles refused to work in the sewer because of the terrible smell. Numerous body doubles for Welles were used. Some were made to wear an oversized hat and padded coat to approximate Welles's larger size. Thought that I had read something about like that's when he flipped was like after a couple of scenes in the sewer, he's like, nope, I'm out. But he yeah. just never went down there to begin with. Yeah, no, he just never went down there. That's the false part. Yeah, the true part is that he did not like the sewers. Honestly, how the f did they get all those lights down there? Just like running the electrical wire down like those like what like I mean these are like 1940s Fresnels and stuff like that. It's not like they have these like LED panels that like weigh two pounds and you can put them anywhere and they run like all they don't even get hot. Yeah, yeah. That. They're just <laughs> shoving like all of this electrical cable down there in a sewer with all of this running water to get all of this gorgeous lighting and no one no one died. No one got electrocuted. Nothing. Before it hits the, the, the spot uh, where he's like looking around at all those different doors and trying to tell where the voices are coming from, like before it hits that moment, I was, I was very tired of that, of this, of the scene. I thought, really? it went on, I thought it went on way too long and then it got to that part and I was like, all right, I'm back in. Huh. Okay. Next tour. And it's somewhat related. Orson Welles worked one week on this film. True or false? Ooh. Ooh. This one's uncomplicated. Just. Yeah, one sentence. Oh, no, that's yep. the, uh, uh, one calendar week. Uh, calendar week. I'll say true. I think, oh. yeah, I think true. I think yeah. you get what, because screen time wise, he's in it for 
15 yeah. minutes? And I know Tough. he showed I know he showed up late to shoot, so he had to smile, he had to give a great speech on a Ferris wheel, and then he had to do close-ups in London pretending he was in a sewer in Vienna. And that's just about it. And then there's the other scene in the diner where he shows up at the end and then starts running away. Yeah, a week. I'm gonna go with a week. Yeah, I was also true. With the caveat that it actually took two weeks because he was so late to set all the time. In which case, I'm going to go false. I mean, you got to pick one. You got to pick one. It's Torf. Okay, true. I'll go true. Okay. It's not (laughs) Tanth. Yes, it is true. Uh, Orson Welles evaded production assistance and assistant director Guy Hamilton while traveling in Europe when he was supposed to be on location filming in Vienna. During Wells' unexpected absence, Carol Reed had to film around him, getting numerous spectacular shots in the sewers seen in the finished film. So yeah, only a week. You got really, like, that's a pretty cush gig. It's a star, it's a star role. role. Star, star role. role. <laughs> it, is, it really is a star role. In every conceivable way. <laughs> every it is a star way. role. Yeah. It's a star it's the perfect role. Orson Welles role. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Torf. You guys are doing good. Uh, a key sequence of the Orson Welles 1951 film Othello was shot during the production of thir- The Third Man and the Vienna Sewers. I gotta go false. I mean, false, false, right? Because he wasn't even in the sewers. Sewers, yeah. Or did, unless they, did they use Are, are like, you talking about the sewers set? The sewers. The sewers. Hmm, that's all I can't imagine. The sewers. Um, I can't see, imagine. I, wait, wait. A, a, a key scene in an Orson Welles starring movie, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Orson Welles was in the sewer. It just means that he he took the film. Because if the film was just like, hey, can we use your crew to shoot some sewer shit, considering you already have a crew and some lights in the sewer? And some shit. That, yeah, that, that, that sounds like it's true. But the way you phrase it implies that Orson Welles is in the scene. If Orson Welles I don't know. Say the, say the uh, line. Say the line again. A key sequence of the Orson Welles 1951 film Othello was shot during the production of The Third true. Man in the Vienna sewers. True. I'm going to go true. Yeah. yeah. We'll go true. Doesn't, you don't sound. Bad. I feel like you're being just cagey enough about it that it's true, <laughs> yeah. but for some weird some kind of obfuscated reason. Yeah. I'm on my hairy line. Uh, no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're just standing in a doorway waiting for just a French smirking. flag to get pulled up. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Uh, While filming this movie, Orson Welles was also working sporadically on his version of Shakespeare's play Othello, and he frequently stole time on the sets of his other movies and brought in Othello cast and crew members to shoot scenes for his film. Star role. God. So he was shooting another movie. doing it right. Um, Like, I'm doing my other thing this whole time also. Hey, guys, can I I get a couple of minutes on the set? uh... (laughs) Yeah, what an asshole. No wonder Guy Hamilton hated him. He shows up late. He brings his own crew to shoot another movie. <laughs> I got to put his jacket on and run down the street over and over again. This is terrible. Every bit of trivia of this movie just doubles down. I'm like, yeah, Orson Welles had it made. This dude could do whatever he, he wanted great. at this yeah. point in his career. <laughs> <laughs> it's good work if you can get it. Next tour. The Third Man, as I said previously, was critically panned by critics when it originally premiered in Vienna. Famously, the Burkino, one of the oldest operating cinemas in Vienna, only ran the film for three weeks before pledging to never play it again. True or false? Um, I'm going to go true. Because didn't you say that, that Austrians didn't like the movie? They're like I the did only say that, so that I did spoil that like part of it. But I'm gonna go, I'll go true. Cal? I don't, I'm, I'm going to go with true, because I just think it's like, come 
come to the theater and look at look, see our see our sewers on the big screen yeah. <laughs> walk walk past the rubble outside and see a movie about right. our rubble that you walk our, past our, on all, your way into the theater all the rubber all the rubble and sewers you can handle <laughs> uh well tricked you guys on this one it is false so you got us i gotcha uh so while... and a half <laughs> <laughs> well it's actually so yes well it's true that uh famously vienna critics did not like uh the third man uh now in vienna the film has a permanent slot in the burkingo of the oldest operating cit- cinemas it is played three times a week in the famous burkingo burkino to this day cal did yeah. you have some extraneous dwarfs I got, I got, I got, I got, I got a couple here. True or false? This movie was so successful that it spawned a short-lived television series about Harry Lyons' escapades before the film. That is true. Oh, you know that? And I am, and I am confident about that. Well, you are wrong. It was not short-lived. It was actually quite long-lived. There's 77 episodes (laughs) of this third man that is all about Harry Lyons. You, you tied a torf and I fell for it. Yeah, <laughs> dude, seventy-seven episodes. That's they, no, that they is. Almost, uh, they almost hit syndication it, levels. They're yeah. three, they were like three away from like. That's you, that is not nothing. No, that is not nothing. And uh, my 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 la- my last torf, true or false? Harry Lime theme was so popular that the composer guest guest starred on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, I know it's true that the the theme song was very popular. Yeah, but I don't know if that's like the show that he appeared on. I don't know if that's the it's, false part. Uh, you know, it's the same show. That yeah, the I'm going to go true. Yeah, I'm going to go true. It is. Yeah. He, 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 he zithered, zithered his way into America's he, he, hearts he, via he, Ed Sullivan. Yeah, he did He did zither on the Ed Sullivan stage. Good for him, man. <laughs> I love zither as a, as a verb. Great. Yeah. He just zithered all over Ed Sullivan's audience. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your MVP, guys? I'm going to go uh, Krasker. Cinematography. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go Cal Reed. They also worked together on, like, Krasker was his, like, regular, you know, cinematographer. And I just, I think that, like, it, listen uh carol reed was a prolific director and it seems like that this is his only film that like really survived the test of time and just like is an absolute classic he won an oscar for uh oliver but yeah i i think mostly you're right he won an oscar for oliver too yeah he won best director for oliver there you go damn he has two statues but also well he didn't win for this oh he didn't Uh, he he was nominated for this yeah robbed yeah i i'll take either one of those but honestly i mean you guys know me i i'm I'm my my judd hirsch level mvp uh soft spot uh it it goes to bernard lee like we talked about it a little bit uh, a little bit earlier sergeant Payne is just such an incredible and unexpected energy for a movie like this like the fact that he's i mean he matches the zither he's the personification of the zither right like he's just this this he charms his socks off me every time I, I watch this movie and it's incredible um and you know Callard somebody brought it up earlier about his death is like the straw that breaks the camel's back for Holly and so like if this is Holly's movie and it's about it's about his relationship with Harry and for Sergeant Payne to be so charming throughout and for him to pull it off in such a way that his death hits that heavy and it's the thing that causes Holly to take a gun and cold-bloodedly just shoot an already injured 
uh, Harry, like Harry's already been shot and he's trying to crawl up steps and get away. Like he's, he's done, he's cooked and he shoots him again. Like that's, that's tough. And he does it on the heels of Sergeant Payne dying. Like that's incredible. It's, it's, I those mean, little, he killed his one fan, things. his one big fan. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only guy that's reading my books. How dare you? <laughs> but that's the kind of thing. I mean, it's always the kind of thing that I love about movies is the little things that sort of translate into bigger character arcs. That's like, you kind of, you kind of step back and you're like that. If that one little piece isn't in exactly the right spot, then this bigger piece doesn't doesn't work. You know, so I'm giving it to Bernard Lee, my my man M. Hell yeah! Two one, two things I just want to bring up. Do you know that like this film and Sunset Boulevard were competing in the same Oscars? No, it's a good year for movies, man. Yeah, right. Like so, the, the, this one best cinematography, which means that this one best cinematography beating Sunset Boulevard, which is also a beautifully yeah. photographed film and the fact that both carol reed and billy wilder lost to all about eve is wild that's something else like yeah the and all about eve was in there too that's an incredible year yeah. it's funny because we were before uh air clint and i were actually talking about sunset boulevard because I, we were saying those these two movies the third man and sunset boulevard are really great movies if you have like a friend who's a little hesitant to get into older movies these are just timeless, totally entertaining, moving at a quick pace. They're kind of in that same league almost. Yeah, it's not like movie, you know, old movies aren't just these dusty old things. Like they they hold up in in great ways. These are there's two really good examples of it. But like the cinematography discussion, I remember when we were talking about Sunset Boulevard, we sort of talked about the black and white cinematography of it not being maybe the best example of it. Like the staging and the blocking and, and all of that is incredible in that movie. But like the photography in this um is i think like head and shoulders above i'm glad it won the oscar for it if it was gonna win for anything yeah. i think cinematography would be it good for krasker good for robert time here so we, we got time for uh one last segment uh cal you want to you want to take this one so who does who does uh nick if this was rebooted today who does nicholas cage play in this film yep who you got i'm gonna pick that creepy doctor if you were gonna reboot this today <laughs> i think like i would spend i would spend a little more time on the uh like let's be real here and and think about this this is a legitimate plot line right is that there was a doctor running a charity where they stole penicillin and cut it and then injected it into in, into children who died. And like, we spent a lot of time with the cops and, and, and Holly, but like, if you're going to reboot it, you got to do something new. Maybe we spend a little more time with the charity and like that creepy ass doctor. And I think Nick Cage, A, could just, he could, he could bring a new light to a, a character that like, played a pivotal role in the criminal enterprise, but not so much in the film itself. And I think that would be like, I think that that's where I would have. He's too- Mine is I very similar. It's Kurtz. Like I, Kurtz. <laughs> only because I, I didn't want to replace him with any of the uh, really important characters because I think those are all very well cast. Um, I just would like to see Kurtz talk someone's ear off with a little dog on the streets of Vienna. I think it would be good. 
<laughs> Nicolas Cage being weird and, and evasive while holding a small dog. No, I get it. Yeah. Tiny dog. Um, I think it could be, if you take like adaptation, Nick Cage, like schlubby past his prime, desperate, sad kind of Nick Cage. Uh, I think there's, there's a version of, of Holly Martin's with, yeah. with that Nick Cage. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, like a guy showing up penniless to a foreign city because his old friend like said he's got a job for him which by the way that's another thing we haven't talked about is like i guess i guess harry was trying to recruit holly to like work in this scheme with him was that the deal in fairness they worked they worked in schemes together like one of my one of my like favorite lines from this movie which you know we did like we didn't get like a particular chance to talk about he was like which is like when he was 14, he taught me the three card trick. That's growing up fast. And then like Anna yeah. says, like he never grew up. The world around him grew up. That's all. Right. And like, it's basically like, yeah, we used to run a three card Monty scam, <laughs> like in yeah. the streets, like wherever they grew up. So like, they've been like, they've been hustling and scheming for like years. But you have this kind of like disconnect where Holly is kind of like, oh, I'll crime a little, like I'll, I'll do a little card game scam, but I'm not going to kill children, Harry. Yeah. Harry's like, what? I've, we used to crime together. I don't get it. I've got a line, Harry. <laughs> um, I absolutely do not think he could be Harry Lime. Because um, no. like what I was talking about earlier, like there's no, there's a version of him where it's like this like total chaotic force of nature kind of Harry Lime that just, but it just doesn't work as much uh, or yeah. as well. If you wanted to like bad lieutenant port of call like Harry Lime like that, I mean that's a take on it. Just like yeah, the, uh, like just like uh, ad- like the adaptation, you know, uh, Charlie Kaufman is a take on it as well. And right. honestly, yeah, I I genuinely do do think that this movie can be remade because like really all you need is a war torn country and a me- and a medical supply shortage, and you've got this story. And yeah. uh, last I last I checked, there is a they're like. You could like there is a war going on in uh, no Europe. real shortage of those. Yeah. No ever, real shortage of war in human history. Yeah. So the one, that, uh, the one I was thinking about how to reboot this, and the movie that that came to mind was Three Kings. That's just just the idea of like post war taking advantage, yeah. kind of kind of thing. But yeah. it's, it's I mean, similar. it's not it's not the most novel concept if you look at it at its most broad strokes. Post World War II murder mystery, guys actually alive etc but there's just so many little things in this it, like I, I just feel like there's so many like little like it's lightning in a bottle in, in a certain way well to your point right like the setting is doing like a lot of the heavy lifting because like let's be let's be real like that setting only exists for a certain amount of time like like the wheels of change are gonna like progress is gonna fix that so like vienna would only look like that for like that period of time so that's what makes it like it's what makes it feel so iconic and just like so ephemeral because like like, the setting literally doesn't exist except setting. for that like six year period. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter how many of these period pieces we make and stuff like that, none of those seem to feel as real as like this was shot on location during the time, you know? Yeah. But yes, you can remake it is yeah. what you're saying. I, I think, like I said, <laughs> I, I, I think all you just need is a war and like you just need a war torn city yeah. with a, with a uh, medical supply shortage and you got the like inklings for like, yeah. And Nicolas Cage to play any number of creepy doctors. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Winkle? Winkle. Dr. Winkle. Quite a collection of... Uh, collection. Yes. 
let's get to it. Let's, where's it? Where's it rank? I I had it on my list. It was at seventy three on my list. Okay. Uh, I spoiled it in the beginning. It was not on my list because I had not seen it. You had not seen it. Yes. Dan, let's see if Dan will send me a message revealing where he had it ranked. Uh, oh man, see, I hate it when this happens. He had it at seventy seven. That's way too close to where I had it ranked for me to feel good. What about was your it. number again, um, Clint? Seventy three. So I had it 73, Dan had it 77. Cal, where'd you have it? 55. 55. Yeah. And then Alex obviously didn't have it ranked at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal, you're you're still you're in the actual office, right? You're Solid the, middle no, of the pack. Do you have the Do you have an envelope? This oh, envelope? Oh, no. yes, that's the one. Did the classified do not open envelope? <laughs> that's the one we're looking for. This is the one. Uh, is it? I think we're allowed to open it now. All right. So, the third man on the uh, upside down on the Cinefix top 100 is 53 53 53 Decent. which is very that's higher that's higher than any of us had it i mean it's on right. 3 out of it's on it's on three, but it's on okay. 3 out of 4 lists but it's on it's on 3 out of 4 lists so it gets a bump yeah. for that i guess yeah. but 70 73 77 and what was it 55 yeah it was 55 gets you gets you to 53 <laughs> you know okay. nah, that, that's how math works Dan math listen yeah. i get it it's a good thing. It doesn't matter at all. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily disagree with that number. Mostly because it's a no. inconsequential three numbers ahead of mine, <laughs> or two numbers. Yeah, yeah ahead exactly. Of mine. You you had it. You were pretty <laughs> pretty well spot on. Yeah. Uh, I can probably think of twenty movies better, um, but I won't right now. Um, so that that's it. That's Third Man, guys. Thank you. Uh, thanks for watching Third Man with us. Yeah, it was real it was fun. Blast. This really. It's thanks always, for this. Always uh, podcast uh, or show to help me on my film right. education because i'm very yeah. glad i actually watched this for the first time yeah, it was on my exactly. list for a long time now you can talk about it at parties finally um finally but uh yeah thanks to you guys of course thank you to our producer tayo oyakin even though he's very devious with his torfs uh, our technical director Mariah franzen for putting us all uh, all together remotely jamie parslow shot this for us uh thank you cal thank you alex and uh, very specifically, once again, no, no thanks whatsoever will be given to Dan. Um, that's just, that's the least surprising thing about this podcast. Um, but uh, in the meantime, you can also subscribe to Cinefix and all that. Uh, you can also hear this without actually having a look at us uh, on all your favorite podcast spots, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, uh, Amazon, etc., And then come back next week when we will be talking about another pulpy little detective yarn, RoboCop. Clearly, RoboCop's a better movie than Third Man, right? Yes, without question. I'm so excited. Algorithmically speaking? (laughs) Oh, yeah, maybe algorithm. We'll see what the science says about it next week. But uh, but we'll 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 be talking about RoboCop. Science science turned a man into a robot to police the streets of Detroit. I'm pretty sure science is going to rate itself higher than Third Man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Science is already in the bag for RoboCop. best content for kids is both entertaining and educational. And with 5 for 5 Trivia, not only do kids get to learn from each week's brand new theme, they also get to challenge themselves by playing trivia. 
a Parents' Choice Foundation Silver Award winner, this fast-paced trivia podcast is perfect for kids ages 6 to 12. It's released five times a week, so it's a quick addition to your daily routine and a fun challenge to get five out of five right on trivia topics like animal sounds, time travel, fictional ghosts, and underwater exploration. So get your high fives warmed up and check out Five for Five Trivia, available wherever you listen to podcasts. 